Aloha and welcome to Reflections on Interpretation, talking story with guides and interpreters. I am Tim Merriman, your host, coming to you from the Big Island of Hawaii. Today, my guest is Jennifer Waithman in Australia, actually from the United States. Is that correct? That is correct. I'll I'll do the Australian greeting. Good day, mate. Hey, mates. <laughs> well, we love Australia. We've been there a few times and always delightful. And we especially love the coast you're on where the, is it called the Sunshine Coast or Fraser Coast? Um, Fraser Coast. Yes. Sunshine Coast is just a, little, a few hours south of myself right now. Okay. So you're near Brisbane? About five hours from Brisbane. So you have the Gold Coast and that goes up Brisbane is above there, north of there, Sunshine Coast. You have Noosa and you have the Fraser Coast. That's where I am in Harvey Bay. Okay. Uh, it's been a while and we, we spent some time there at an international conference, NAI did. And we uh, spent some, it was in Townsville. So we got well acquainted in Townsville and we were in Cairns, which I want to call Cairns. That's all right. I understand. I always have to check myself with my pronunciation in Australia because my American pronunciation wants to say every single letter and it just is asking, how do I say this correctly? <laughs> yes, so I'm an Oregonian, so the Pacific Northwest. That's where I was born and raised. A uh, little bit in the valley, so outside of Salem, Monmouth Independence, and then moved over to Central Oregon, a little town called Prineville. Probably not as little as it was back then. Uh, and then went to uh, college actually in Bend, Oregon. So Oregon State University has a branch campus there. And that is where I attended my college days. And really, what I just kind of got raised uh, with the love of the outdoors by my mom. She always took me fishing and hiking, and we did a little bit of boating. And so I was just outside a lot. We owned horses, so we went riding. And it was really her that kind of just produced the love of being outside. And there was one evening... So where I lived in Central Oregon, it was kind of a bit of a triangle. You have Primeville, Redmond, and Bend. And I was living in Primeville, but had to go back and forth to Bend for college and then Redmond for where my job was at the time. And I came upon a deer, a mom and its fawn. And they were in the middle of a very sharp like S corner, like a 90 degree corner. And it was getting pretty late in the evening. It was fully dark. And I knew that back road and knew how fast people drove. And so I actually pulled over and was just viewing from the safety of the car and couldn't see anything wrong. Of course, while I was sitting there, another car zoomed through and almost hit the deer. And I did, of course, knowing things I know now, probably maybe somewhat what I shouldn't have done, but got out and did approach the fawn. There was no blood, no bones protruding. Nothing looked wrong physically on the outside that you could see. And so a mom stood there. I moved the fawn to the side of the road and went and left. So at least it had a chance and then reported to the sheriff's office. And unfortunately it did pass away. So something must've been wrong internally, but it was a bit of my light bulb moment. I have one of those I need to choose a career that has to do with animals and being outside. And that's actually my light bulb moment in my past that led me to where I am today. Well, that's great. And yes, your undergraduate degree was in what subject? 
Yes, environmental science was my bachelor's, and I started out just focusing on doing your, you know, double A, your AA, just those core classes. And that was um, a time where Oregon State hadn't been fully the chosen campus in Bend. It was between them and University of Oregon. So by the time I had finished that, they had become the chosen extension campus for the area I was in and one of the degree options which part of it was online and some classes were in person or you know delivered videos it's you know back then the online system was just kind of a newer way of um, education and decided on environmental science because I thought I wanted to do more on the ground research and my minor was fish and wildlife and that's what um, I followed through on and thought I would go into research, but that didn't happen. <laughs> I have a similar back in that did a biology, a zoology degree, thought I was destined to go on and graduate school and become a researcher. I did a master's in botany. I realized I did not like sitting in a lab looking at a microscope. I like being outside. I have that same um, actual moment in while I was going through college, I worked seasonally for the U.S. Forest Service at Deschutes National Forest at one of the national monuments, the Lava Lands, well, Newberry National Volcanic Monument, uh, but Lava Lands was where the visitor center was and what more people actually went to. And so I had a seasonal job there, and that was when I was introduced to interpretation and found, wait, I'm a very social person, an outgoing personality. And I was like, I can talk to people about the environment and make a career out of that. That's a thing. I was sold right then and there. <laughs> my, my dad used to ask me, he says, so do they really pay you to do what you're doing? I said, yeah, dad. He says, it sounds like kind of a welfare job for the state or something. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> well, he had worked for the WPA in the 1930s. And so, and uh, it did not pay well, but it helped feed his family while uh, during the depression. But it, he thought of state jobs as kind of something you got politically, and I assured him it was because of my degrees, not my politics. <laughs> well, you said your first job was with the Shoot National Forest, and you mentioned we were chatting before we started because we did not know each other before this conversation. I just want to be clear up there. I don't much of the time I'm talking to people I've met through the years in the field. But I enjoy meeting new people, and I certainly love learning about what people are doing internationally. Roger Riolo was one of your that got you involved with NAI and kind of because you are a certified interpretive trainer now. Is that correct? I am now. Yes. So Roger was working at the same place I was uh, at the same time, and he was the one who introduced interpretation to me and I will never forget the we only had about I think it was a half day training it wasn't that long um to and we had canned programs that we were to get you know there was a patio talk and then a guided walk out over the lava fields uh and we had just a little bit of training and I will never forget though the very classic now paper bag example of intangibles and tangibles and what all of those means and, and you know it was a very classic it was it was a bottle in a bag and being passed around what does it mean and then the story and then what does that mean now one word to describe it and uh it, it's kind of funny to look back on really because 
it's been so long now that it's since that initial time, but it's still a memory that really sticks into my head. And I think many of us probably still use, you know, that sort of an activity through like certified interpretive guide training in, in explaining how an object can have so much more meaning once you tell its story. And I will never forget that, you know, moment. And, and Roger was a man. So uh, it's, it's thanks to Roger Riolo <laughs> that I'm here. And I did that very activity Monday of this week because I'm doing a virtual CIG course. And uh, Roger, I've known a great many years. Uh, you got involved with NAI when you were working where? It's actually hard for me to pinpoint. I think it was more when I was with the National Park Service that I became a bit more aware of NAI. So it would have been after my time with the Forest Service uh, and just being within, I was at Lake Mead National Recreation Area. So not necessarily a uh, normal national park in the sense of it's a recreation area, but getting to know, I was in the volunteer office, I should say. So I was an assistant volunteer coordinator. So my focus was only on volunteers. But during that time, I loved so much interpretation and environmental education that I went through a course through, oh, it was a, I'm going to space on the name because it's been too long, but it was part of the university and they had their own little institute that was doing a lot of work there in Vegas, but they had a Nevada state certificate in environmental education and interpretation that they developed and offered. And so I went through that program and always tried to reach out to the interpretive staff that was at uh, Lake Mead to be involved where I could and just kind of know who is who, what's going on. And that was more when I would say I became slightly involved, aware, and, you know, on the peripheral reading Legacy magazine and, and learning the, about the regions. Didn't you work in Clark County in Nevada? Uh, yeah, I did. But the after actually the Park Service, though, and the reason um, when I was with the Forest Service, I was a seasonal and then a student hire when I was completing my master's program. And that was online through University of Denver in environmental management and policy. And the reason I went with that aspect is because I wanted, I had the science with my bachelor's core. I wanted the applied science idea with the policies and the management side of things. And that's why I took that track with my master's program. Uh, when I went to the park service, I was a term higher. So of course my job was not a permanent job. Those term contracts are, uh, were very common when I was going through the federal system at that time. So only so much money for so many years. It was a position my supervisor wanted to make permanent, uh, never happened while I was there. And so after that time though, I moved back to Oregon actually before, uh, I, I stayed down in Las Vegas. I went, moved back to Oregon, worked for the U S fish and wildlife service where I did oversee volunteers who were doing all our seabird interpretation. And the Oregon Coast National Wildlife Refuge actually spanned 320 miles of coastline on the Oregon coast. And the, the work they do is great. I'm still in touch with who my supervisor was there. Dawn, she's lovely and doing great work. Um, so I was there on another term <laughs> for a couple of years before I went back down to Las Vegas. I'd, I moved a couple of times in the career, which you know is quite common, I think, with seasonal jobs in those terms sort of contract positions now the hard question yes. or at least it's hard oh to... no hard question <laughs> how did you get from the united states to australia oh that's an easy question <laughs> uh so 
after I left the Fish and Wildlife Service, I moved back to Las Vegas and joined the Nevada Department of Wildlife. And I actually was their boating educator, which was within the law enforcement division. So very different uh, experience. And that's where I met my husband because he was a gay warden. And so he is a dual citizen of Australia. And um, of course, we mentioned the, the love story happens. <laughs> that's for another conversation. <laughs> and um, we ended up his plan always when he retired was to move Preferably New Zealand was his first choice, um, but he did want to leave the States. And so, that, of course, that was part of our conversation when we were dating and getting serious. And I was like, yes, of course, I'm happy to move. I had always thought it would be an incredible experience to live in another country and work in another country. And uh, it has been. And so he retired at 43. Lucky guy, smart guy. And not long after we were waiting for my visa to come through and we moved over. It was five years ago in June, actually. And uh, yeah, so uh, here I am in Australia. It's been an incredible time and I'm getting to live one of those kind of dreams. I, I guess I didn't know if whatever would happen, actually living and working in another country and having those experiences and opportunities to kind of compare and contrast and see what's the same what's different and it's it's been it's been you know really great I, I really appreciate the the time I have here and hopefully um our plan is to stay here long term so that's how I got to Australia <laughs> you're in an amazing place incredible fruit bat populations that what's been the most wonder to you in being in that new location oh now see that's the tough question how can you choose one thing? Um, uh, name a, I'm going to name a couple. Yes. Now I am a bit of a birder. So coming over here, being around parrots was absolutely incredible. Still is incredible. You know, there's not a day goes by that I don't see some of these amazing birds and go, oh, you know, look at all these incredible parrots. And I mean, there's many other amazing species. One in particular, I just have to mention because they're so cool. If you don't know what they are, I encourage anyone that's listening to look them up. Tawny frogmouth. So the tawny frogmouth, it's not an owl, even though many people think it is. It is more closely related to the night jars, uh, but they have this amazing ability to camouflage and just look like part of a tree or a branch. And they're fascinating and they're just full of character. And I got so involved and in, it was Mike Keybird, actually. I think even over the parrots, I really wanted to see coming here. And it took me over a year to finally see one. And I was lucky enough when I was working for Parks Victoria, we had a pair that actually nested and had three babies and we got to watch them grow up. And they, one of their favorite trees was right at the entrance to our main cave that we did tours in. And so we got to, you know, fully see them grow. And it was just, fascinating and I ended up having to buy a book to read more about them and you know fun fact about tawny frogmouse their last defense for predators against them is uh spraying feces and it's really smelly and it lasts a couple of weeks and that's their last line of defense so that's your fun fact about tawny frogmouse today <laughs> <laughs> I they are for anyone that knows birds they are a goat sucker they're of our whippoorwill and chuck will's widow and Night hawks, all those uh, goat suckers of the North American continent, but they're an amazing, and they're bigger, aren't they? They're uh, yes, as that family goes. Um, yeah. yeah, so that that's probably for 
wild oh, well wildlife i mean if you talk about wildlife you got of course the iconic koala and we were lucky enough when we first came we lived in victoria in an area called east gippsland and there is an island called raymond island that has a lot of koalas and that was within my first few weeks that we went out there because we stayed there and uh you just a foot you can look up and there's a koala sitting in the tree just right above your head it's you know one of those moments that you just go wow <laughs> and you know you have the kangaroos in your backyard the eastern grays and swamp wallabies and then you have moments where you have the echidnas come up there's one area that there was a certain one that was really friendly you know you're just again a couple feet away and you're sitting there watching it and you're just going this is amazing <laughs> so when you talk about wildlife it's so iconic it's so different from north america and what you're used to with the big mammals and you don't have that over here so i think that overall would be probably the biggest thing for me because that's just my passion and you know interest is that the animals is but um the second thing i have to mention i was just with that question is the other thing that i've loved the most was when i um we moved up to queensland was a couple of years ago and mary cancroft scenic reserve it's in the hinterland of the sunshine coast and it's a remnant rainforest and it is such a magical place i every time i walked in there it, it almost words can't describe the feeling because it's just this other sort of worldly place that's so magical it, you really want to talk about a site that you know you could get involved in interpreting in that passion shining because it's just there's little secrets to uncover everywhere and it, it's so incredible so that's probably my other site and, and moment that I, I just love. Now I haven't gone further north, so I have yet to enjoy the Great Barrier Reef. So ask me again in a few years and it may change. <laughs> well, I I have such memories of that. I mean, it's kind of the, the wonder of swimming on the reef and seeing clownfish everywhere and anemones three feet in diameter and uh, reef sharks and all of that kind of thing. But also wearing a suit that covered everything but our mask because of the uh, box jellyfish and fear of stingers. I thought the Dane tree was amazing because I I worked for Bat Conservation International at one time and spent time in um, Belize catching bats and fruit bats. And fruit bats in Central America are like 30 inch wingspan. And the ones up, I don't know how big they are in Dane tree, but they, they look immense. They, and they just they look like little dogs with wings. <laughs> Flying foxes are pretty amazing. Uh, it's it's one of those species that I mean I find fascinating. Uh, I would say not everyone finds fascinating because they're also a very high urban wildlife conflict species. So if you think about like back in Vegas, I did a lot of coyote urban wildlife conflict uh, work. Uh, that's definitely a species here that a lot of people have conflicts with just the smell and the noise and when they roost nearby uh but i think they're they're incredible and we have a lot of gray head of flying foxes where i am uh some black and then little reds is, uh, is the third one but yeah they're they're really they're really cool to just watch fly out and how big they are and platypus are great that's another another one of those iconic creatures of australia that you know i love always reading that historical, you know, sort of reports or, or, or 
I guess, about that those first explorers and the people that bring the specimens back. They're like, what is this thing? You know, and, and the names, like, it's a duck. No, it's a beaver. What is it? You know, it was nothing like it anywhere that they had seen. Have any of your jobs in Australia in the last five years involved you interpreting directly to the public or are you supervising volunteers and such? Uh, yes. So when I got back after the birth of my son in the U.S. and uh, taking a bit of, I guess, a break before we moved over here, uh, I worked when I worked for Parks Victoria. When I went back, I was back on the front lines. I was giving cave tours and it was actually, I think, a lot of fun to go back to that after you've been in a role where you're doing more writing or like overseeing volunteers and doing more, uh, I guess, of the management side of things when you're in an office than being out on the ground and talking to people. And so it was it was a lot of fun to get back to that and, and develop a tour again and you know talk about these things and do them and, and just talk about the people, the people that would come from all over to the site. And it wasn't in an area that would be a normal tourism you know, it's way out of the way. It's five hours outside of Melbourne. So it's not anywhere nearby that most tourists are going to. And then even off the main, I guess, highway that goes through that area, it's another hour. So it's not a, an easy site, but there's people from all over that would come to those caves and, you know, just the conversations. I think that's what I love the most about being out there, whether you're at a visitor center desk or giving a tour is those side conversations. And, oh, you know, I had owners of a resort in Morea, which is French Polynesia. And that's where my husband and I went on our honeymoon. And so it was just this, you know, here we are in the Bucking Caves in, you know, Victoria, Australia. And we're talking about, you know, Morea and French Polynesia. And it's just those things that happen, I think, has, you know, really opens your eyes to how small our world is in some ways. And I think those conversations are just, I think, some of the highlights. The people you meet, you know, there was definitely people from the U.S., you know, and they would know, oh there's an American here, you know? <laughs> and so that's our instant conversation, of course. Uh, and then there's, I remember one time, this is funny. These are the things you learn living in another country. And we're getting ready for a tour and it was during one of our busier times. And I was like, everyone that has a noon ticket, everybody for noon. And finally someone had to say, we don't use noon here. It's 12. <laughs> And I went, okay, sorry about that, folks. 12 o'clock, everyone. Who has tickets for 12 o'clock? So, you know, those are the things that happen that you actually don't even think about, you know, when you're working in another country. It's just a little tidbits, just little, you know, terms in that language. Uh, and so it's always been a process going through and learning that. And, you know, even behind the scenes when you're with other staff, you know, they talk about something they use you know, some term you don't know, you're like, what is that? And so, you know, we joke around, please, you know, once a week, give Jennifer her Australian word of the week she needed to learn. <laughs> so I could start learning the Aussie lingo. <laughs> That's wonderful. I, I think, uh, first of all, I think languages are wonderful. It's uh, uh, two weeks ago, I chatted with Maricar Donato, who's a interpreter in Washington, D.C., her own business, Washington Tour. Yes, I, I do know her. Oh, you do? Well, she routinely... Vir yeah, virtually, yes, yes. She routinely guides with, in five languages. That's amazing. I said, how does that work? And she says, well, I'll have a bus with 45 people, 25 are Italian, 
10 or journey, five or three. I go back and forth continually. <laughs> I think that's great. It is. It's, it's quite the skill set. I encourage young interpreters these days learn another language because there's a big demand for it on the front lines. Yeah, I definitely would agree. There is. And I think that's one thing about living here. It, it ties into language, but the more you can experience things outside your own culture, outside your own world that we create, the better you can be because you'll have those experiences. You'll have some knowledge to draw from when you're actually talking and reaching out to people that, especially here in Australia, I've seen the, the amount of different backgrounds and cultures and uh, countries that people come from is much larger than I experienced in the U.S. Would you characterize your market? What percentage, for instance, in your area would be international markets, Americans, Europeans, whatever? Well, I think that's one of the interesting things. They weren't necessarily international tourists. They were people that migrated, but oh. might have been first generation. So you see that. Um, but I'm trying to give myself a moment to pause to think, how many people were quote unquote Australian, at least multiple generations, you know, so they, their families had been here a while versus, and there was a bit of that at that site because it was a site that many families, oh, my parents took me here. So I want to bring my kids back here. So there's that, but, um, there, there still is, even as being Australians now, there's the, the immigration, the different people that live here from different backgrounds is a lot more noticeable to myself than than the U.S. and so um, I, I think you, you, I think you have almost close to a 50-50 split to some extent of your locals, uh, your you know Victorians because people from Melbourne would often holiday out there, and then your international or people that are going there for the first time because maybe they have only been in Australia for a few years or they just hadn't made it out there before. Uh, it, it's definitely was a different type of audience. So you really got to look at you, your universals, right? In that sort of a situation, what are those things that can speak to, to many different people, no matter where they came from? Right. Uh, I'm curious, did the pandemic have a diff difficult uh, effect on tourism and your work and where you are. Definitely. Oh, definitely. It happened when I was um, still in that role and a uh, large effect. I mean, we shut down for time at times. And then when we were able to open back up, you know, it was restricted numbers and of course, restrictions for mask wearing and, and all of those that we're all familiar with and we know, you know, kind of what happened, but it was a big dip. Um, I left in the sense I guess during still part of it, not the the heightened first year, but into the second year, and um, you know, not sure how they've rebounded, honestly, but uh, I'm sure I'm sure they have because it is one of those sites that not just families that would return visitation, but also it has kind of I guess in Australia, it's one of those caves you visit. If, if you're a caver or it's one of those sites, if you're out in that area that you go to and, and if you're visiting family or someone, you know, they're going to take you to Buck and Caves. Uh, so uh, it, it definitely impacted and it impacted even after I left that to um, Sunshine Coast Council, where they were still dealing with, you know, not just your visitation is lower 
of course, we had no internationals, so numbers overall were lower. But then you have the aspect of your volunteers are dropped off because they have, you know, their own personal safety concerns. And then you also sometimes will have the impact on staff and what sort of, you know, requirements, regulations have come in. And there is really different here because when we moved to Queensland, the borders were closed between states in Australia. Uh, yeah, I remember hearing that. Yeah, uh, so to get to Queensland, we actually had to go stay in Darwin in the Northern Territory for a few weeks because we had about a six-day window where they were letting regional Victorians into the Northern Territory as long as you took a test upon arrival and it was negative, you didn't have to quarantine. And so we, uh, within 48 hours, had our car shipped and were on a plane to the territory to move to Queensland where all of our belongings were because I had taken a job with the local council there. It was quite the adventure. Claire Savage and uh, Rusty Creighton, who I talked to last week. from Yes, I do know them. I met them both in New Zealand during the international conference. They said that uh, pandemic didn't terribly affect them. They have a high percentage of Western Australian visitors to their site and they didn't have the big issue big issues of um the pandemic didn't hit them as hard as it hit the eastern part of the country so uh, you know on our island we get a million visitors a year 180,000 residents on the big island and that million visitors just disappeared for two years they were gone and yes. i do this funny thing of picking up litter along the road we live on I pick up 18,000 items a year. And so when I realized the visitors were gone, I thought, oh, gee, I'm going to have a lot less to do. And uh, my litter pickup decreased by 10%. But oh, what wow. I, uh, what I really learned was that it's a local values problem. And we're beyond the pandemic, and we've got our visitors back, and our volcano erupted about yes. weeks ago just... And that's what people come to see here is the volcano. So it's a big attraction. I that's take... one reason I came here, especially yeah. from working at a volcanic monument in Bend. I was couldn't wait to go see the actual activity happening. It was fascinating. And was it erupted? Oh, not there was, you know, Pella lava being formed, just small, not like a bigger eruption but you know just to see steam vents and and that magma flowing in and creating pillow lava a new land it's just all those processes i took a volcanology course because i was really into that and uh you know living with the cascade mountains and working at a site that also interpreted geology and volcanology it just became kind of a, a side passion of mine i guess and so you know i had had to go up to hvo hawaiian volcano observatory and say i've been there and you know, <laughs> all those good things and yeah it's a beautiful island though we actually have a friend that lives closer um Kona, Hilo Hilo okay other side yes, of the off off Hilo yes exactly yes so do I understand from reading your uh bio your information on what you're doing that you've changed roles again recently that you're kind of senior that's correct or something of that sort <laughs> Yes, my, my official title, Senior National Environment Officer, uh, but my role is really overseeing our volunteers, doing outreach, environmental education, and our interpretive signage, which has become one of the things that I'm really passionate about. And uh, that's kind of started back when I was with the Nevada Department of Wildlife. Uh, so uh, there's 
Yeah, it's it's nice because I actually can kind of grow and create a lot of things as um, I see in the best interest and what what fits. There's only a few things that historically I'm continuing and and I have a lot of um, open opportunities to to make a pretty big impact. It, it it'll take time because it's just myself in this sort of a role, and uh, long term I hope to train up some volunteers to be able to do face-to-face -face programming and being a CIT, I can train them in the CIG program and which I actually did when I was with Sunshine Coast. So I taught Brisbane City Council, a group from their Environmental Visitor Center team, uh, put them through the CIG course and then also some staff and volunteers from Sunshine Coast Council. And so it was it was my first time teaching in an international setting, which of course there's certain things you have to edit and change. Um, little things just like what the weight that you know it's not pounds. <laughs> we gotta do grams and things like that uh, for certain activities, but also just some of the references, you know, with the workbooks everything's American, you know, and there was comments and, but I'd always start the program, you know, the, the week that, you know, yes, you will see that, but I've tried to adjust all the activities to have an Australian influence. And, uh, there was someone here that's, a, um, a name that many people know, John Pastorelli, you know, John, who, yeah. So John was really helpful in trying to help, um, give me the names and some information for like the history of interpretation section. So I could reference some of those influencers here in Australia. And it was great because it also opened my eyes and, you know, I'm learning as I'm creating this and, and learning as I'm teaching it at the same time to some extent, which was a really good experience. So it's one of my things I've become actually a really strong, a strong advocate for is the sense of having good, training for face-to-face -face programming and uh it's it's definitely lacking you know over here i've i've noticed and um I, i've had these conversations with a few people and uh they definitely were not where america is <laughs> with with many things um and our interpretive association interpretation australia everyone is except for one a bit of an admin role everyone is a volunteer role so we all know we all have lives, we all have jobs. And so only so much can get done, but it is exciting because they're having their first conference since the pandemic. It's just a one day or, but that's in November in Sydney. So that'll be great to try to get all of us connected again and, and move forward with um, a new strategic plan over here. Great. I spoke at uh, World Heritage Congress, an organization no longer exists, but um, 96, in Sydney, and we stayed at the quarantine station, which is on the North Head uh, Peninsula above Sydney Harbor, and it was fascinating. I mean, quarantine station is their Ellis Island, uh, your Ellis Island in Australia, and it was, we were staying in these buildings with a tin roof and curtains for walls and kookaburras getting us up at 4.30 in the morning. And it was a great introduction to Australia. I'll never forget it. And you don't need alarm clocks. We got the kookaburras and the magpies. And uh, honestly, every morning, even just our house, we got the brown honey eaters going and the magpie larks going. And just, yeah, don't need alarm clock up here. Yeah. I went out to, when I was down there, I went out to Blue Mountains in Victoria. I think that's in Victoria, isn't it? 
New South Wales. Oh, it's in Outside New of Sydney, the Blue Mountains is New South Wales. Yeah. Uh, and got into the uh, lyre birds doing their display and walked around the, I think it's called the Three Sisters Rock and the, a bluff there and lyre birds displaying. It was just stunning. The other thing I saw in Australia that blew my mind was to go down to Prince Philip Island, uh, south of Melbourne, and uh, see the, the penguins. penguins come out of the water. Because it almost seems like you paid to be at a non-show because you sit there on the bank of the ocean looking at the water and going, well, there's nothing going on here. This is <laughs> And then all of a sudden... <laughs> The rafts start showing up of the penguins. I had to do that before I left Victoria and moved to Queensland. I had to go see penguins in real life. So I, I've done that a few years ago. It's amazing. Very cool. I love the little penguins and the and the lyrebirds. We had a lot. We had the superb lyrebirds at Buckham Caves, and I loved seeing them. But uh, I miss them because they're not up here where I am now. Yeah. Well, I applaud you for doing the training you're doing down there. We, Lisa and I's have always believed that the CIG course is best done live in person. When pandemic came along, <clears throat> our first reaction was, oh no, they're going to do this online virtually. I don't think I like that. And then I get to where I just wish I was still working in the field. And uh, I decided to teach some virtual courses. And then I, I'm in the midst of my 10th or 11th right now. And I guess the other part of it that's been kind of fun that and unexpected, I still don't think it's good as a live in-person course, but um, having people, we've had somebody from Russia, Italy, Verona, Italy, from uh, always get some from Canada, from uh, actually Philippines, getting up at two in the morning to do wow. in the middle of the night. But the stunning thing is that there are just many nations that are doing interpretation, but they don't have a professional network yet. They don't have a training framework and yes. they're loving that they can tap into it. And I think that's one great thing about NAI and those programs that have been developed and that it, in a way it is, you know, it, it is taught worldwide. There is people worldwide that have this. And now with that virtual op option can have access, which is wonderful. And I think it's a really important thing just even for an advocate for our whole profession is that we, there is a, a research has shown a best way to do this. We do have some best practices to maximize our time spent with our visitors at our site. And that's, I think just a basis of knowledge that we should all have if we're doing this sort of a role in, in this profession. And that's uh, really why I still talk about it and I'm promoting it down here. And it's not just myself. There's one other CIT trainer, just uh, Stephanie Ambrosia, who uh, came over from California. She's doing a master's program. Her She came up and co-taught one day with me when I was in Brisbane. And uh, it's great to have another person that has that training. And there's interest here. There's actually other interest in people um, becoming CITs. So I've had some conversations uh, with Paul and I think it's Amanda, our new uh, Amanda, yeah. training lead. Yep, Amanda. And just um, 
uh, maybe in the future being able to hold again uh, a trainer course and, and getting more people certified to teach CIG in Australia because there is a desire for it. And uh, yeah, I just I really just want to support that and, and help push that forward because I've seen the, I think, effect that when you are a trainer and the people you're working with, you see the moments that they have during the cat during the class, you know, those aha or yeah. yeah and, and even afterwards, the people that will just go, thank you so much. Everything makes more sense. Or now I understand, you know, how to create a theme or, you know, I wish I would have had this training five years ago when I started, you know, you see actually the power of having this information and I just fully support spreading that, you know, as you said, there's places that don't have that. And so what we can do to support and spread that word and have this out there for people to take and to gain that knowledge uh, to me is just really powerful. I was just telling my class this week, since I'm teaching a virtual course, that uh, I needed to know what I'm talking about now, 53 years ago when I started working in this field. And uh, sadly, a lot of what we did in training back then was what we we even called it at conferences, gimmicks, gadgets, and goodies. And it was kind of fun stuff. It was kind of recreational gimmicks, uh, candle dipping, um, a lot of crafts, a lot of making things in the outdoors, out of outdoor things, you know, hold a leaf over construction paper and spray it with artificial snow or something. And yes. I was just really aware that we we didn't know what we were doing. We had a bunch of activities and we taught them. And I think we had our moments when we did really good stuff, but it, it, it's mattered a lot. I had the luxury and the privilege throughout my career of getting to go to training with people that were kind of wrote the books, the leaders in the field. Um, and Sam Ham's a good friend and uh, colleague. And we've had deep, long discussions about this journey of getting people trained. And of course, Sam has been to Australia I think he told me yes, he's, more than 90 times. He's done a lot of work up in Townsville, I know. And actually, I worked with someone that uh, took one of his workshops and he he went through CIG, but he had a great comment. And I, I told him I'm going to steal that now because his experience with Sam and Sam said something to him in it. And it's always stuck with him is that we are the weirdos. It's not our audience. We are the weird ones that have all this knowledge and love and passion. And we need to be able to figure out how to bring the audience in but we're the weirdos not them <laughs> i just think that's Absolutely. a great thing you know because even I, I think the audience for me i think just without throughout my career is one of those challenges and i still feel we have in our profession is really understanding our audience better and the time it takes though to do evaluations and studies and it's it's very difficult for on-site staff to get those things done but that provides us the insight that we actually need. Absolutely. Well, I hope they bring the trainer's course to your part of the world. We, Lisa and I did it once in Tuscany. Folks from oh, eight lovely. countries. You want some fun. We played the telephone game, you know, where you tell a story to the person next to you and they whisper it to the person. Yes. Next to you. And we did it with people from eight different countries. And <laughs> the message at the other end of eight was, no resemblance to what started the line. It was absolutely hilarious to hear the. 
Greed, uh, yes. Eat a lot of food and drink a lot of fine wine also that, <laughs> that uh, training. <laughs> so it was cool. Well, my final question for our conversation is just, what do you see in your future? You've already said you plan on staying in Australia. Yeah, so I my hope is to stay in the role that I have now and to honestly really be able to impact what we're doing in this region, whether it is non-personal media like interpretive signage or um, being able to train up a group of volunteers in CIG that can start giving guided tours at some of our sites, as well as we have a regional botanic garden that is celebrating 50 years next year. And uh, really not a lot of these sort of programming has been done there and signage. And so there's a, there's a lot that can be done there. So my, my hope and goal for right now is to be here and to make an impact region wide, but also I'm hoping to get a bit more involved in interpretation on Australia and work on that training aspect here in Australia and, and trying to get more people trained up and also be CIT so they can give CIG if that's one option, but what are our other options? You know, does Australia need to develop their own? Can we work with some of the other organizations that are out there? There's eco guides and Savannah guides here in Queensland uh, with, with the training they already do, how can we work at getting at least a baseline of a training program developed that everyone will be able to have access to or that we can roll out? Uh, I really would love to be a part of that happen. You know, it's going to take many, uh, but uh, it would it would be great to, to see that long term. Well, I wish you well with everything you're doing and everything you're going to do. And uh, it sounds like you have great ambition for the future. I really appreciate your being on Reflections on Interpretation with me. Thanks for having me. It was great to chat with you, Tim. Aloha. Aloha. Next week, September 13th, I'll be speaking with Colby Brockfist, author of the Professional Guides Handbook. We have a contract administration course coming up on October 13th with Lisa Brochu. You can learn more at heartfeltassociates.com. She also has an interpretive planning course virtually from November 7th to 10th, also at heartfeltassociates.com. I also want to thank Mark Stoffel for use of his beautiful mandolin music from the Cookies and Cake album, this time, Ying and Yang. Have a wonderful week. Aloha.